So glad you guys are here. It is my privilege this morning to introduce to you our speaker for today, Reverend Dr. Wow. Any other Ooh. titles? I need Just to make Tapper. sure I get Just Dr. Mike yeah. Tapper, uh, who recently, apparently one year ago today, right? Yeah. Started as the, uh, the chair of the religion division at Southern Western University. And uh, we are honored to have him and his family here in our community now. Wife, one wife. One wife. Yes, one wife. Even in Canada, that's yeah. one, one wife. Yeah, yeah we don't and, do that uh, polygamy and, thing. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah. Four kids. Uh, three of them are adopted. They're all amazing and uh, amazing family, personal friend. And uh, so I would love to take this opportunity and just pray for you. Uh, awesome. Please. Thank you. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be in a place like this, God, with a community like this. And God, I thank you for, uh, Lord, the opportunity for us to just dig into your word. Lord, I pray for uh, Pastor Mike this morning as he uh, just shares the word with us today. God, I pray you would speak through him. And God, that you would uh, just build us up, challenge us today as a result of your word coming alive through his mouth. In your holy name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Pastor Paul. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here this morning at Alive Wesleyan. I am also proud to call Alive Wesleyan my home church. Pastor Paul has just mentioned, uh, my wife and I moved here about a year ago, and I love the way West, uh, Alive Wesleyan has stretched me and, uh, and welcomed my family, uh, and so I'm absolutely honored to have the opportunity to preach today because, yes, you've got to be kidding, this was our reality a year ago. Uh, this is our driveway in Canada. Uh, I think this picture was taken in July, if I'm not mistaken, so yeah, thank you God for leading me to South Carolina, yeah. We're looking at Hosea chapter 6 this morning. You can grab your Bibles. If not, you can look on the screen here. As you are well aware, we are into our series. You've got to be kidding me. We've been working through this series this summer. We're looking at Old Testament characters in the Bible. But instead of actually fixating on the characters, on the humans in, this, uh, in these stories, people who get eaten by sea animals and people who are slayed by giants and people who get thrown into pits and fires, and people who save nations as queens. We're really trying our best to focus on the main character in the stories, and the main character in the stories is who? Good, you've been listening. Excellent. The God who does not change. Amazing thought, isn't it? The God who does not change. Today our springboard character is a prophet, an Old Testament prophet by the name of Hosea, And yes, if you know this story, it's another one of those strange ones. Hosea is an Old Testament holy prophet, and God tells Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer. Good, good, a less holy person. And so they marry, and they have three kids, and then things kind of fall apart if you know the story. Gomer, C commits adultery, and she bails on the family. But here's where it gets a little bit, you got to be kidding me like. Catch this, God tells Hosea to go and find Gomer, to forgive her, to pay off her debts, and to once again commit his faithfulness to her. And so that's exactly what Hosea does. Now at face value, you might listen to that and hear that, and you may say, Tapper, that is absolutely ridiculous. But what we've learned this summer in our stories is that there's often a deeper meaning inside of those stories, and so we have to dig a little bit. And this story is is no different this morning. We've got to dig. So let's pray, and let's get into it. God, thank you for today. We confess this morning that we are often less like Hosea, 
and a lot more like Gomer. And when we are, we also confess that we often want to avoid the consequences of our bad decisions. But we are so thankful this morning that even through all of that, it's your divine love that calls us back to be restored. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you this morning that being a pastor is an absolutely amazing experience. The staff at Alive will tell you that being a pastor is one of the greatest vocations, the greatest privilege that they have in life, one of the greatest privileges at least. One of the amazing things about being a pastor is that you often find yourself walking with people through their pain. And pastors often have a front row seat into the victories on the other side. Take Matt, 38-year-old Matt, as an example. I met Matt four years ago at a waterfront park in Canada. Matt was addicted to crack cocaine. He was, still is, completely covered in in tattoos, and uh, his head was shaved. And and literally, folks, I want to tell you that, that he had a glare. You know, you've met people before who have just a stare. Uh, Matt had a stare that literally scared people away from him. Four years later, Matt has become one of my closest friends. I still talk with him quite often. His life is radically changed. He's, he's a Christ follower. And that, there, there, there's, a, there's a new spark in his eyes that actually attracts people to him instead of repels them. Pastors will tell you that this is the very, very best thing about being a pastor. Seeing lives changed. It's absolutely amazing. But here's the hard side of ministry. I'm looking out at a congregation. Some of you are practicing. uh, You're becoming, you will be a pastor shortly, soon. Here's the hard part. Sitting in an office, listening to a wife say that she cannot leave her secret lover. Or performing a funeral of a person that's just committed suicide. Or journeying with people who are absolutely gutted by a lifetime of abuse. Man. Or seeing people Sunday after Sunday showing up and repeating the same mistakes week after week. See, I love being a pastor. I've loved it. Absolutely loved being a pastor. But I confess to you this morning that being a pastor has prompted some questions inside of me. What is true confession? What is real repentance? In your life, in, in, in my life, How do we discern a a genuine commitment to God from a half-hearted commitment to God? And is a half-hearted commitment to God any commitment at all? Well, friends, these are not new questions. People have thought about and pondered about these questions for years. In fact, I expect that these are questions that the prophet Hosea must have processed as he thought about his own marriage with Gomer, but also as he witnessed firsthand 
the relationship, the contemptuous relationship between Israel and God at that particular time. You see, Hosea lived in a time when all was not well between the nations of Israel and Judah. While both of these nations outwardly expressed a faithfulness to God, they also manifested a divided loyalty that made a fragile relationship with God even more fragile. And so it's not a pretty picture in the passage that we read. And as we're about to see here, God is really not all that satisfied. This is the context of Hosea chapter 6. Read it with me, if you will. Verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Pause. Voice change. Verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. Verse 6, For I desire mercy not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. We'll stop there. I want us to notice this morning that there are two distinct voices in what we just read. In verses 1 to 3, it's the voice, we presume, of the people, of of Israel. But then in verses 4 to 6, there's a voice change, and it's the voice of God of, of Yahweh. Now, here's what I want us to do this morning. I simply want us to evaluate and listen to what these two voices are actually saying to each other, and then what I want us to do is to consider what that second voice is actually saying to you and I today. Can we do that this morning? Are you with me? Are you with me? Good. Okay, good, good, good. So let's start by looking at the first three verses there, verses 1 to 3, the voice of the people of Israel and Judah. And as we look there in verses 1 to 3, it seems to present itself in the form of a confession, uh, an expression of the people's bona fide repentance. And as far as confessions go this morning alive, we might say that it contains all of the markings of a really, really good confession. In verse 1, the people cry out, let us return to the Lord. In verse 3, let us acknowledge the Lord. These are two very important themes all throughout the book of Hosea. The idea of returning to God, the idea of knowing God. And so on the surface, Verses 1 to 3 express just about everything that could be hoped for. Israel, just like the New Testament prodigal, has decided to go home. The lessons have been learned. God's way of disciplining those he loves has finally gotten through to the people. Verse 1, the God who has torn now heals. The God who has injured now bandages wounds. And best of all, revival Complete restoration is almost at hand, according to verse number two. In a short period of time, it says there, in 
two days, maybe three, life will again be enjoyed in all of its abundance. God will come, verse three, Israel can be sure of it. As sure as the sun rises, as sure as the rain falls, God will come and deliver Israel from the mess that they're in. So we cue the lights, the worship team comes forward, it's a 10-minute sermon, closing song, and we all go home happy. But wait a minute. Let's take a closer look. Because upon further review, Israel's confession here, while it contains some of the right words, it's lacking some key components to true and genuine repentance. Take a closer look. And notice, for example, that the confession there in verses 1 to 3, it contains no acknowledgement of guilt. No specific renunciation of sin. Look closely. Who's to blame? Who's torn the nations? Who's injured the people? It's God. See, this is God's fault. It's not the people's fault. It's God's fault. But thankfully, see, God has this amazing national bailout plan. And by the sounds of it in verse 2, the great news is it's going to come really quick. Revival is going to come quickly. Revival in two days. Restoration in three. And because God is going to do this, it's almost like there's some... Hebrew bravado there in verse 3. Oh, God, God's going to deliver me. You, uh, you can be sure of it. D- does the sun rise? Does the rain fall? Oh, oh God's going to provide. All we have to do is show up on Sunday morning and return and acknowledge God. And when we do, our actions in and of themselves, they will demand God's intervention. Something's not right here. Something's not right. Friends, upon closer scrutiny, and certainly based on what follows in verses 4 to 6, we might say that verses 1 to 3 qualifies as a classic case of a shallow confession. And maybe, if I can say this gently, maybe might I suggest a confession not a whole lot unlike mine or yours today. It's not lacking emotion. It's not lacking sincerity. It's not even lacking sorrow over our painful situations. It's just not one that calls us into account. You with me this morning? We don't call it sin. It's just the way I am, Tapper. (laughs) Cut me some slack. Uh, I've got a few rough edges. I'm only human, Mike. Nobody's perfect. Listen, I do a lot of things right. God doesn't mind if I have that one, one little piece, that one little thing, all the while guided by a little bit of an assumption that God will make things right because that's what God does. God's 
going to get me out of this situation. God can work miracles. God can change things in an instant. God can fix our financial issues. God's going to mend our broken relationships. So God, here I am. I showed up on Sunday morning, didn't I? Bless me. Bless me, God. But God doesn't seem too impressed with that. And I think what follows, friends, actually reinforces that. Take a look at what God says there in verses 4 to 6. And here, I would argue, is where we catch a glimpse of God's heart. God's heart and compassion over our sin. Here we see a God agonizing over what he's just seen and heard in verses 1 and 3. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What what can I do with you, Judah? Your love, it's like a mist, like the dew that disappears. Same sort of cry that Jesus expresses in Matthew 23. You know this story. He looks out over Jerusalem. Do you remember that? He looks out over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, people of Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. What is it that God has taken such offense with here? Our love, friends, is like the morning mist, like the dew that disappears. You know, I find it kind of telling uh, as we look at this passage this morning that the issue that God actually brings to the forefront is the people's absence of of love, their lack of love. The word, the word love here, um, if you dig into it, you can see that it's tied to this idea of loyalty, this idea of faithfulness, this idea of commitment. It's a love that's described earlier in chapter 2 of Hosea as a love that betrothes God to his people. And this is what is missing in Israel and Judah. It's the kind of love that's so evident in a marriage. By the way, is the Hosea Gomer story beginning to make a little bit more sense? A love that's intended for a lifetime. Uh, A love that screams relationship. And it's that lack of love with which God has taken ultimate offense. Let me try to, uh, to illustrate it this way. And I, I recognize this morning that, that any human correlation to divine love will always fall short, but, but here's one of my best attempts. Um, some of you know my wife, Christy. Christy uh, and I have been married. Wow, that's nice. That's great. Uh, Christy and I have been married for 20 years uh, in two, two weeks pretty excited about that. Yeah, some of you have been married for uh, 20 years and more. We're following your lead. 20 years, and I can honestly say to you that my relationship with Christy is strong. Uh, Our love for each other is very strong, but I have to admit to you that I compete against another love uh, with my wife, uh, and that love is ice cream. Christy's been cultivating this love since she was just a child. How many of you adore ice cream? We got some ice cream lovers here. Okay, best, uh, best flavor? Chocolate peanut butter. Okay, somebody else? Mint chocolate chip. Okay, 
I hear you. I hear you. Wow. My wife hears you too. So in in a grocery store, uh, when my wife uh, enters into the grocery store, she will often march rather indignantly past those generic knockoffs. And she will find herself uh, staring into the, uh, into the glass of the most delicious high-end of flavors. This one's Dutch chocolate. This is a good one. Uh, Christy enjoys chocolate cherry cordial. That's a good one. Uh, peppermint chocolate chip fudge crackle. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, mojito gelato. The mojito gelatos of the frozen dairy sector. That is my wife, and she loves these flavors. Now, uh, knowing this about my, my wife, uh, imagine with me this scenario. Uh, imagine with me, if you will, after a long, long day of work, and without Christy actually seeing me, <laughs> uh, I managed to get my hands on, this is a half gallon, a half gallon of Dutch chocolate chip. Now, uh, imagine me, opening up the Dutch chocolate and, oh, I know, yeah, imagine uh, me sitting down and eating the half gallon of chocolate or, or Dutch chocolate ice cream in one sitting, right? Just like that, just going for it. Now, imagine me taking the spoon empty. Imagine me taking the spoon, putting it inside the container popping the lid back on, and putting it into the freezer. (laughs) Are you with me? All right. Now, imagine with me. Some of you are good at imagining. Imagine with me. Christie's shock. (laughs) (laughs) What do you suppose Christie might think what do you suppose Christy might do when driven by her deep urge to enjoy her favorite snack, she opens her recently purchased treasure to find nothing but a frozen spoon? <laughs> Surely she'd be perplexed. <laughs> uh, severely disappointed. Um, profoundly Angry, quiet, and dignified as Christy presents herself in public. <laughs> I can imagine Christy utilizing this spoon as a weapon <laughs> upon certain parts of my body, right? <laughs> Don't miss it. The ice cream container. In the right place. With the right packaging. But empty inside. What a disappointment. What a disappointment. Friends, how much more must God be disappointed when he sees Christians on the outside appearing authentic, even repentant, but on the inside, an empty container, allegiances, divided. What breaks the heart of God? It's right there in verse 4. What can I do with you? Your love is like a morning mist. You see, this is God saying, you got to be kidding me. If you're looking then uh, for what 
God really wants, we can actually see it there in verse 6. For I desire mercy, God says, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. See, friends, what I think that God is reminding us this morning is this. God is reminding us that he cares a lot more about what's going on on the inside of us than any image that you or I portray on the outside. I'm admittedly oversimplifying this morning, but you get the point, don't you? God wants the full ice cream container, not an empty carton. 700 years after Hosea, Jesus and his friends are getting heat from the religious leaders. It seems that Jesus' friends have just broken one of the 613 laws that the leaders have come up with around the Sabbath. You remember Jesus' response? Quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he basically says this. You know what, guys? You don't know what you're talking about because you do not know me. Stop looking at the outside and get real about what's actually going on on the inside, the relationship between you and God. And so, Alive Wesleyan, we have to ask the question, let's make it as practical as we can. How do we ensure that the outside actually matches the inside? Three quick takeaways for us this morning, and then we're done. Firstly, it's important for us to learn how to detect sin in our lives. Yes, I know that it sounds crazy, but holy people all the way down through the centuries have actually gone looking for sin in their life, in their lives. And so John Wesley often got alone and measured himself up against the Sermon on the Mount. And John of the Cross called himself to account against the deadly sins, the seven deadly sins. And Martin Luther often found himself working his way through, get it, the Ten Commandments. And we do it here today at Alive when we use small groups and when we use accountability groups and partners in part as a system of checks and balances to identify the sin that's in our lives. Why do we do this? Well, we do this because it's important to learn how to detect the things in our lives that grieve the heart of God. And so we've got to learn how to detect sin in our lives. And accountability helps with that. It helps with that. Firstly, we detect sin in our lives. Secondly, we practice discipline. Yes, alive, I just said the word. Discipline. Discipline. If detection helps us with the what of our sin, spiritual disciplines help us with the why. Spiritual disciplines are activities we do by direct effort as Christians that help us to do what we cannot now do by direct effort. So let's make it as practical as we can possibly make it this morning. If I am struggling to be patient with my four kids in the morning, maybe I need to shut the television off or go to bed earlier. That's spiritual discipline, friends. If we're struggling to control our attitude, maybe we have to check what we're feeding our mind. What we're feeding our mind. You see, God calls us to practice disciplines that guide us toward God's ways. Outside 
matching inside. Detect sin, practice discipline. Finally, and above all, we're just about done. Learn to desire God. And church, this is at the very core. If you're looking for it, this is the core. It's at the foundation that holds up all of our motivations to detect and discipline the sin in our lives. Desiring God is the inside, I'd say. The ice cream in the container. Yes, it takes discipline to cultivate a love for God. Yes, it takes discipline to develop a passion for his effort. It takes effort to develop a deep respect for divine holiness, a determination to be like God. But desiring God, my friends, is at the very, very core to true confession. That's the main ingredient to overcome sin. But maybe you're still not convinced. Quick story as we close. It's uh, an allegorical story. I'm sure some of you have heard of it, of a challenge between the sun and the wind. And both the sun and the wind one day are watching a man walk down a path and they challenge each other to remove the man's outer cloak. You know this story, some of you. And so the wind goes first. And wind stirs up a wild storm that angrily whips at the man's overcoat. But as the wind increases in its strength, the man clings to his cloak. And so finally the wind gives up. Next comes the sun. Glowing brightly, sun sends its warmth to heat the day. The temperatures rise degree by degree and the man on his own takes off his coat to enjoy the warmth of the sun. Here's the point. You and I will never be successful blasting sin out of our lives with a high-powered super soaker sermon or, or, or some wildly spiritual experience or, or, or even some sort of strong personal resolve. It doesn't work that way. We know this. We've tried this over and over and over, and we've failed time and time again. So what does it take? What does it take? Listen. It's allowing God, degree by degree, day by day, instance by instance, to get inside. And to permeate our heart until there's no room for anything else. Listen, God's not looking to jam you this morning. Remember what he says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So friends, get to know God. Get to know God. God really, really, genuinely loves you. And he's looking for a genuine love from you and a repentance from you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Thank you for being such attentive listeners this morning. 
in a, in a room like this, odds are that there are some, if you were really honest with yourselves, you would say that you feel like you are on the losing end of a certain area in your life. Maybe it's an attitude. Uh, maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it is an unwanted reaction, an excuse, an unhealthy relationship, a way of thinking. I don't know what it is, but you do. And maybe in your mind, or as you've interacted with other people, you've just kind of passed this off, but deep down, you know it's not right. You know it's wrong. If that's you this morning, and God has brought something to your mind, here's my challenge for you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come up to the front. None of that. If you're in church world, this may sound strange, but for now, I'm not even asking you to confess your sin this morning. But here's what I do want to challenge you with this morning. If there's an area of your life that Holy Spirit has shone a light on this morning, you've been excusing it away, but really you know it's in the way. Would you just pray with me and would you invite God to come and speak into your heart? I have every confidence in the world that God will give you direction in what you need to do. But maybe today all it is is just inviting him in to a dark situation and saying, God, I need you. I need you in this. And then my second challenge to you is this. Talk to someone this week who you consider close to God. Go for a walk, sit on a porch, set up a time to grab a coffee with them, and talk with them about what God is saying to you this morning on this matter. They will listen. They will listen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the way you're speaking into hearts. Thank you for the courage that you give us to attend to dark areas in our lives. We want our outside to match our inside. We don't want to play games. You don't want us to play games. We've been reminded of that this morning. Help us to live the authentic life. Help us to remove those areas of our life that create distance between us and you. We need your strength. We can't do this on our own. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Amen.